It's time to wake up to Tequila Sunrise. I am Greg White, your supply chain tech advisor, with more insights into what you need to know to succeed in supply chain tech startup, growth, investment, and transformation. So let's tip a glass to another enlightening Tequila Sunrise. Hey, understanding how investors think about your startup is a mystery. When you're pitching, what are they hearing? What opinions are they forming? So many founders, including me and maybe even my guest, think they're communicating one thing when actually it's quite another. And it may not be at all what's in your pitch deck or the communication you intended. My guest and I are going to reveal to you what investors see, what they think, and what they discern that founders have no idea they even communicated. And by the end of this episode, you'll not only have insights into how investors tick, but also what you can do to be a bit more clear in communicating with investors, understanding why investors' perceptions land where they do, and what you can do about it to be more effective. So, let me introduce our guest, Saina Zorlu, venture partner at Venture at, at Kubera Venture Capital and Stealth Startup co-founder. Can't wait to hear about that. Look, Sana has been on both sides of the table before. She's a, a previous co-founder, current venture partner, along with me at Kubera. She is my Sherpa, my guide to help me improve on being on the venture capital side of things. When you first start out in, these, in this, everything is a good deal. Uh, but especially when evaluating companies in our work together, uh, she's been amazingly insightful, a really powerful communicator, a force to be reckoned with, a new mom. So you need to hear from her. So let's do it. Saina, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So, um, all of this conversation was spawned by an email you sent to me that I'm, I've got right over here uh, <laughs> that I refer to daily and, and a number of the things that you've sent over time as we've discussed things like thesis um, and evaluation points. This most recent one was on traction and what that means. Um, so tell us a little bit about, about you, what you're doing today, and maybe a little bit about your founder and investor journey. Sure. Um, so um, I've I've been in the U.S. Um, on and off for about 15 years. I came to this country first for uh, college for undergraduate, um, and I've been mostly on the East Coast. Um, and then um, I got to live in a couple of different countries. I uh, went back to Turkey for a little bit. That's where I'm originally from. Um, I lived in Belgium for a little bit um, and I lived in China for a bit. So um, oh, I saw Belgium. I did not see China. Where were you in China? Um, so China, um, I was doing an MBA program. And um, since I've been an entrepreneur, I didn't have like corporate sponsorship. So I had to pay for it out of pocket. And um, MBAs are expensive. So I found yeah. um, an international MBA that was much cheaper. Um, and they had their exchange program in China. 
um, in Beijing. And I was like, okay, this is a wonderful opportunity to learn about what the hell is going on in China. How do we yeah. do business there? And like, I thought it, it, it could, it could give me an edge. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to Beijing. Uh, How long were I you did, there? Um, I did the, so I was there on and off, um, but it was because it was an executive program. It wasn't like a standard um, um, MBA experience. So it was like one week off of like a couple of quarters okay. uh, where you had to go and like complete some classes. But like most of it was online um, and it was an amazing experience. And then um, so that was up in Beijing. And then um, later I went to Guangzhou. Um, I, I wanted to do a couple of um, manufacturing stuff there. So I got to see that area, stayed there for a couple of months. Um, it's really a different world. Like that's that's another conversation. Yeah. Um, but then um, 2013, um, I get an offer um, from Virginia Tech uh, to help them with their partnerships for their executive programs. And then I realized how much I had missed US. Um, and I was like, yes. I'm coming back. Um, so I was going back and forth between Virginia. Um, and then I met my husband in 2014 and um, he had grown up in California and he was like, let's go to Los Angeles. And I was like, no, 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 no. I like New York. Let's go to New York. Um, and then we, we settled in San Francisco Bay Area. We thought best of both worlds. Um, so we've been here since 2015. Okay. And um, I started building my second startup when I was in Bay Area, um, working on uh, Internet of Things, data, um, and on the commercial side of things. And um, I did that until 2018. And that's where I met Alaji, who's our managing director of um, Kubera. Um, right. he, was, he was leading SAP's early stage uh, program SAPIO and my startup was one of the the startups in the uh, SAP's early stage program. Um, so I met Balaji there. We got to work out, uh, in the same office. Um, and then uh, when he when he was building the fund, he came to me and he was like, "You want to help me build this thing?" Um, and and like, yes, I've been in venture capital officially for over two years, but at the same time, it was an entrepreneurial experience to build this fund, you know, from the ground up. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a lot of learning with, you know, what documents do you create? What, what, what are the processes? And like all of that, it was incredible learning. Um, so we, we, we got to explore like everything from scratch and, and built our own thesis and, and investment model and, and everything. So um, it's been an incredible two years. So I'm the new kid on the block, right? I mean, you two yes. are effectively founders and James, of course, are effectively founders and I'm the new kid, but uh, I appreciate all the welcome and the help and everything. But share a little bit about, because I think you can do it better than I, I can, share a little bit about Kubera and, you know, kind of the founding thesis and then not too much depth, but the official thesis. I think, I think it's interesting. So it really interested me and inspired me to join you guys when when I talked to Balaji about it. So I would say at Kubera, our foundational thesis is on two areas. One is we do invest very early stage um, and we invest mostly outside of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, we believe that opportunity is found everywhere um, and we would like to focus at people who are coming out of traditional industries and who are coming out 
knowing all of the, the pros and cons of those industries and going back in as founders to digitize and to transform those industries. That is, I would say, our sweet spot for Kubera. And, and we have, um, everyone on the team has done the traditional um, uh, business side of things. And we have seen how digitization, AI, machine learning, um, smart data, and all of these processes can really transform um, how companies are performing um, and, and including from their manufacturing process to, right. to their services, agility, you know, to human relations, all of that. Um, so, so that transformation that we've seen, I would say in the past like 10, 15 years, you know, you look at like Fortune 100, you look at like Fortune Top 10, um, there has never been a moment in history where those charts have been changing so quickly as to like, who are the top companies? And, and we have point. found that every traditional company in the world needs to evolve into a software company. Um, and that is inevitable. And you can get there now or you can get there eventually in the future, but you will have to get there. Um, so, so that was the first focus where we looked at where Fortune 100, Fortune 500 is. And when you overlay that on where startups are coming from, there's a mismatch. And that's one of the big reasons why um, these large companies are having so much difficulty transforming their processes. Yeah. Um, they have innovation officers whose job it is to, you know, um, build relationship with startups, maybe like, um, uh, bring some pilots, uh, with the business units, but it's, I've, I've built enterprise software. It just, it doesn't work. And it's so difficult to work between startups and enterprise that we thought, um, these companies need to be built where these problems are actually occurring, where the human capital is, where you're looking at a lot of cities in America where the predominant ec economic um, income is still coming from these traditional industries. Mm -hmm. But there is talent. Um, there's talent from you know universities being built up. There's talent from, um, we, we found a magical equation with one, what we call subject matter expertise that comes from the industry paired with a technologist that understands what technology can do. And we have found that that becomes a very powerful um, um, match made in heaven. So I would say yeah. that's that's the first part of the thesis. Um, and then on the second part of it, um, we do very early investments. Um, and we have decided, what, when we say very early, we mean in the early stages of product development, in the early stages of getting some sort of inkling at revenue. Um, um, we have always invest at, uh, I would say, sub $1 million revenue. Um, where, Boy, that, will, know, maybe that will enlighten a lot of people, won't it? Because think about, I mean, you founded a few companies, right? I have too. It's the million dollar threshold that nobody wants to touch you until you hit that. So. Yes. This whole concept, and this was attractive to me too, Sana, this whole concept of seed, pre-seed, seed plus, whatever you want to call it, whatever you have to do, whatever you have to call it so you don't put a letter next to it, because yes. a letter means that you have to have a million dollars in revenue. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? um, that, that's been a great, I think that's been a great service to the, to the industry. It has helped a lot of companies get the right kind of investors that can not only provide money, but actual assistance. 
in the founding stage. Absolutely. And also, once you get out of the main technical hubs, you will rarely find investors that have appetite to invest in these rounds. Yeah. Um, a lot of the investors are looking for traction, traction, traction. Um, and then when we see traction, like that email that you were talking about, not all traction is same. Not right. all million dollars account to the same thing. So it's like, as investors, what we try to look for is the recognition of an early pattern, the recognition of, of some sort of early signs of um, go-to-market success, um, which is very different from just revenue because you could sell services. You could have one amazing customer that you are solving their absolute need and, and they can, 70% of your revenue may come from creating the perfect product for them. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean repeatable revenue. So it's like not, not all traction is created equal as well. Mm, that's well said. Um, yeah. yeah, and, and you said it well here, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think it's, it's interesting to think about those topics because, you know, as you're discussing that, I'm thinking of a slide, I'm thinking of a traction slide or a go-to-market slide or whatever. And I think about what, what founders so often communicate, what they expect that an investor wants to hear or they think they need to say. And it's difficult for them to get into the mindset. I can tell you it was a mm -hmm. transition for me to sit on mm -hmm. this side of the table and go, oh, that's what they wanted to hear. Yep. Right. It really Happily, is a difficult absolutely. transition, right, to make that in, in your mindset. So um, I want to get to that in a second. But I, I want to I understand a little bit about your transition from founder to investor, right? So um, one of the other theses of, of Kubera is – that we want to elevate everyone, right? We are specifically yes. looking for um, female founders, people Value of color, add. disadvantaged populations, things like that to, to provide capital to. So tell me a little bit about, and I don't, I don't sense that you have like a crisis story, but tell me a little bit about how you've experienced founding and investing as a, as a female. So, one thing that was very interesting to me that I hadn't quite grasped when I was sitting on the founder side was how many meetings your investors had to take on a daily yeah. basis. Gosh, that's a good point. Um, this to me, like when I got a meeting from a fund that I was very interested in, I always thought in my mind, okay, like this is half of the sale, getting the meeting. Getting the meeting is not even 5%. Right. Um, and that was quite shocking to me. And I've, um, I've, I've had founders where they got meetings, especially coming out of accelerators, because you have these like buzz over companies and, um, and, and they book a bunch of meetings because the accelerator arranges it for them. And, right. and there's this false hope of um, thinking everything is done, um, which, which I went through some of this as well. So one thing is, um, I think founders need to understand how the funnel is built on their side and how the funnel is built on the VC side. So um, 
a lot of times you hear people talking about, you know, when you're fundraising as a founder, you must have a CRM. Um, you must put a lot of funds into the top of the funnel. Um, and the average, I believe, is about 60 to 100 um, VCs wow. that you have to reach out to um, to get a deal. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a reverse statistic. Um, on the VC side, I have been told that um, to make investments, I have to source a hundred X of the number of companies that I would like to invest to. So let's say if I'm going to invest in two to three companies a year, which is by the way, the average that a VC firm general partner invests a year, two to three companies, not more. They don't want right. to take on more responsibility than that. Um, so that means they will have conversations with 200 to 300 companies. Now, when I first started with Kubera, I started as an associate. Um, so I was the gatekeeper. I was right. the one that screened all of the deals. I was the one um, that filtered all of the databases and everything. So my KPI um, was uh, to screen about 600 companies and create a database for us um, so that we could successfully invest in five to six companies. Now, that's an incredible number. So the trick with that is you need to understand where these deals are coming from. And then you have to have a quantitative process to understand where the successful deals are coming from. So like, let's talk about our case, which a lot of micro funds will be where we have someone like Balaji who is super connected in the industry. And just by being himself, deals fly to him. Yeah. See, you and me, we're not there yet. Yeah. Um, we're like, we can try to get we there. We still have to grind it out. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it's, it's one of those things where like, whenever I have like a shiny new company, most of the time he's heard about them. There's a reason for that. Or the industry um, or, yes. you know, or a competitor or something like that. Right? Competitor. Um, and he is, um, he has wonderful relationships built with other venture capitalists, which I think a lot of founders are also neglecting. Like what you communicate with one VC may transfer to another. Um, there's a lot of conversation, um, yeah. good or bad, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's like, usually when we like a deal um, and when we decide to invest in it, immediately we're telling our other VC friends, do you want part of this deal? We have 500K allocation left. Um, we are gonna give that opportunity to the friends that we like. So it's like, there's, there's a lot of conversation. And when you come into the industry, you're not hooked into the conversation. Um, so it's like that top of the funnel where your partners are bringing you deals. Um, that's your like high quality leads. So when people say like warm introductions matter, they matter. Um, because if, if a lead is coming to you from someone who says, you should take a look at this founder, you should take a look at this technology, they're building something interesting. Yes, we are going to be paying attention to that company first. And they may exist on a database on, you know, on the same line, but they will not be weighed equally. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that we will never look at companies that we don't get a warm introduction from. Um, but that's where I would say, um, I would suggest to the founders to look at the more gatekeepers of the fund, as opposed to aiming for like the top um, managing directors of the fund. Um, yeah. I, and, I agree. And I would say, like, yeah, like you get a lot of cold emails. Um, Greg actually gets a lot of um, inbound traffic from our website, mostly from this podcast. Um, how many of those emails do you read, the cold emails that you get? 
Um, I, I try to read them all, but I don't put them at the top of the stack. You know, if Paul Noble yeah. from Verison sends me somebody or you send me somebody personally, I do that. That's different. And, and the yeah. reason for that is I trust your judgment, right? Yes. It's pre-screened for you. It's, it is. It's somewhat pre-screened. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. I, I yeah. agree. I, I think, um, and I think that's an important part of it. Look, that's just an important part of life. You're, you're, you're more friendly to the people you're more familiar with, right? You're yes. someone who is recommended by a friend is more likely to be your friend. It, it just Absolutely. works that Absolutely. way. Right. I mean, but one disadvantage of that is um, a lot of these underrepresented populations, they are not in sync with um, these traditional friend groups. Yeah. So um, we may get deals from, you know, an Ivy League circle that an underrepresented founder may not be part of. Right. Um, we may get deals from people that may look like us, which they may not have had the chance to do so. So yeah. it's like a lot of the time, um, the most important passage that we need to have is, is in an open communication and push towards, um, you know, cold emails or like web-based applications. Um, I try to do a lot of, uh, I try to attend a lot of demo days for female founders. Mm. Um, and I, I see that it may not match my thesis, but I have done a lot of introductions where I thought the founder was pretty strong. Um, yeah. And it's, it doesn't match our thesis. We're a small fund and we're a very specific fund, but it's, it's, we make friends along the way. Um, and then we have also, as female investors, we are trying to build our own little group. Um, we have we have a little WhatsApp group of like about 15 female investors and we yeah. pass deals to each other. Um, and, and we do that because we want to excel each other um, in the industry. And it's like if there is this bro culture that shapes the industry, why can't we build our own subculture in it? And that's not to say we see ourselves as like completely different, but it's like, it's another subset of um, networking that we can do where um, we try to find people that may look like us um, and, and try to lift them all together. Yeah. Um, I, I so think I that's think, really I think important. It's changing. I think it's important from a, from a cultural standpoint, from a racial sex standpoint, all of those things, but also from a socioeconomic standpoint, like I'm, yes. I'm a poor farm kid born in a trailer park. Right. So I can empathize with those people who don't yes. have don't have Ivy League connections, haven't grown up doing this their whole lives. Look at entrepreneurship a new way. And I think that's what's really powerful about the awareness that's been created in the last couple of years is you can see the value of somebody with with a different kind of upbringing, upbringing and and figure out what kind of gifts they bring that complement the gifts that someone with an Ivy League education has, right? And 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 connecting those people is, is to me, it's easier than ever before. It, it is easier than ever before. But we we still yes. are really, really active and, and about that. And that's doing. the beauty of technology. Technology is, is the biggest democratizer in the world. It's in, the biggest amen. opportunity created in the world. Yeah. So when you look at technology in that way as, a, as a encompassing all of us, um, 
we can't have the decision makers be from 1% of society because then the products that they will back will not speak to 99% of the society. And right. that's why it's so critical right. um, to, to, to bring diverse voices. I think it's happening. I think um, the change has started for two things. One is, I think there is a real shake in traditional industries and that includes venture capital. Venture capital is a traditional industry. Money is mm -hmm. a traditional industry. So the old institutional money is being shaken up. If you look at banks today, the way they're being disrupted by digital banks, if you look at, you know, like angel co like syndicate funds, if you look at, you know, like Republican and other, you know, crowdfunding platforms, right. um, there is wealth creation that's being democratized right now that will create ripple effects. Yep. And that's absolutely coming. Yeah, no doubt. I, I completely agree with that. And I think, and I agree that it, it is time. That, and as you said, you said, I'm quoting you on this. T technology is the great democratizer. I would say it is. it's the great democratizer of relationships. If you think about LinkedIn and Twitter and other, other, other meaningful relationship type tool sets. I mean, if someone- I met my husband online. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, and now absolutely. since the pandemic, I think LinkedIn, it's funny. Somebody just posted something the other day. Nick Groomer, I think is his name, um, lives in Scotland and he's trying to find a place for all of his or many of his connections to physically get together when we can get together now. I had an experience the other day saying that with the folks at Supply Chain Now, um, Jeff Miller, who was new to the group, came up to me and 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 shook his hand. I wanted to give him a hug because I was like, I, I forgot that I had never physically met him before, right? I was like, <laughs> oh, right, we need to introduce ourselves, right? It just feels so natural. I and I think we've we're overcoming that because we've had to, and I think we can do the same with with uh, social interaction. I mean, socioeconomic interaction with with the financial industry. Certainly, we can do it because it's being done. For yes. instance, in Africa, there eighty percent of the population is unbanked, and yet they have figured out a way for people to pay with their cell phones or you know applications or whatever. So. Um, the, the opportunity exists. It's just that we, we, the consumer, we, the mass population, we have to adopt it and then things will change. And when more and more people start to adopt this notion of spreading the wealth, it will happen. It's just going to happen naturally. So it will happen. I, I think it's, it's, it's happening already. Um, and I think, I think the first phase of it is sort of like affirmative action where we have to push to get funding to a lot of underrepresented folk, um, including female, where we yep. have female specific funds. We have social impact funds. We have, you know, uh, uh, Latinx funds um, and things like that. So that's, that's an essential way to get things going. But as these investments produce results, we are going to mainstream it in a way where they're not going to call me a female founder. They're going to call me a founder. Um, so that's, that's where we're, that's where we're going. Yeah. We're, we're not there yet. The sooner um, the better. We're, we're getting there. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. Well, so let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about you as an investor, actually not talk. 
I really want to ask you some questions about um, some of the things you see, have seen, think you'll see as an investor. And, you know, one of the things we're talking about is how do founders and investors communicate? So tell me, why do you think it is so hard for founders and investors to speak the same language? You've just outlined a couple of great examples of that, you know, of those gaps. What do you think the main impetus for that that gap is? I think um, it could be a couple of things. I think one is um, through, I would say, mostly Twitter, there is this um, culture of worshiping investors, um, which I have had as a founder, you know, like I, it's like whenever I met someone that I've been following on Twitter and they have like, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, you are a little bit fame struck. And it's, mm. um, I, I think what founders need to understand is you are on equal terms. Um, and I think even founders are, at an advantage where it always tries to look like investors are at an advantage. You know what I mean? Because they're more ungettable. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's the opposite. I think money is a commodity. And like, are there super angels that put incredible value in the companies that invest in? Of course. Um, but there are small it's founders small minority. that are taking the risk. It's the founders who are building companies. It's the founders who are spending years without taking salary um, when they're first building out their companies. Like a lot of this um, stuff is overlooked where we are looking at only the most successful companies where we know that 99% of early startups fail. And with that, um, it's, Founders take incredible risk. Um, most investors um, do not. Uh, first of all, they come from either built wealth or family wealth or whatever that may be. So mm -hmm. they are usually more cushioned to take risk in life. And in essence, they, you know, these funds are created um, to invest in a high risk asset class. So they are doing their job. They're just investing in high, high risk asset class. Right. Um, but but for, for founders, I, I think it's more profound. I think it's more life-changing. And I think the risk that a lot of founders take, particularly if they're engineer today, um, as work is more remote, um, a, a mid-level engineer is taking a risk of $150,000 to $200,000 plus benefits by doing their own startup. Yep. That is, you know quantitative risk. So um, a lot of companies get to a series A level in about four years. So let's say you're a, a higher level engineer, um, you are actually risking a million dollars just by committing to a startup. Um, so I think that's less talked about. Um, it is and less I talked about because investors don't want to give you credit for that million dollars as if it was an investment, right? And, and there are a lot of investors who are offended when, when a founder tries to take salary. Right. So we can't ask for experienced founders, multi-time founders, and, and not grant them any of this because um, you can 
not all, all founders have the luxury to live in a bunk bed with five roommates and, and build. There are a lot of people who are family people who are paying mortgages, who right. have a real life. So it's like a lot of this evangelical view of like, you know, um, hustle and um, don't live for a couple of years, eat noodles and like raise 250K from friends and family. Like, right. no, it, it doesn't appeal to a lot. Like a lot of founders do not have the luxury to do these things. Yeah. Um, so I think one thing that investors could do better pro probably is uh, perhaps better communication of understanding how startups fail. Um, because a lot of the times, like one thing that was astonishing to me was when I was building a company, um, it was very difficult for me to see where the white light was. Um, but I met some investors that had experience in exactly what I was building and they knew the challenges that I were going to face. And um, so if that communication could be a bit better, um, perhaps we could save people time either to pivot or, you know, to focus on something that's meaningful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that could be very interesting, um, but also like, share wisdom where um, where they can help out, like actually help out. Um, one thing that was amazing for me was um, when I was building my um, IoT company, um, there was this, uh, TechCrunch had this uh, special program um, where uh, they matched promising female founders with uh, the most famous investors in Silicon Valley for like office hours. Um, and I got matched up with uh, Brian Schreier of Sequoia Capital, who is like, wow. I would say, one of the most famous investors wow. in, um, in, yeah. in Silicon Valley. And I spent um, 20 minutes with him talking. Let's say 10 minutes of it was me pitching and trying to explain what I do. Those 20 minutes was the best feedback that I had ever got uncensored because I wasn't asking money. Um, and it was just like a very friendly chat and like, Whenever I think about anything that's scaling, I go back to what he told me and I'll, I'll share that for free. Um, what he told me was no Sequoia company ever failed for lack of money. They fail for lack of focus. Hmm. And that to me changed everything because the thing is, if your business works, you will find money. Yeah, that's a given. Yeah. That's a given. So when your business is stuck, well, let me let me back up for one second, except for pre-seed when like there are too many unknowns. But it's like when you come to a point where your business, your startup is a well-oiled machine, it is so easy to find investors that want to put more oil in that machine. Yeah, right. Because that's, that's very predictable. That's very de-risked. It's, it's when the machine has problems or the machine is just building up that that's when you, when nobody wants to invest in you. When you're building. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's our stage. We don't even right. know what oil it needs. It right. Is it a machine? Um, we, don't, we don't even know if marketing. it could be a machine yet or if anyone exactly. wants the machine. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's yeah. and it's, it's not always the same. Like we always assume as founders that like money can solve all of your problems. Money can't solve all problems. So it's like venture capital, um, that's my biggest learning is venture capital wants to give money 
to problems that can be solved with money. But if your problems can't be solved with money, such as customers not really wanting your product, yeah. such as you haven't figured out who your perfect customer is, um, such as, you know, the technology doesn't exist, like VR technologies, things like that, where it's like there's not enough market for it. It's like these kind of problems will block you in a way where it's not about pitching to 200 more investors. It's just you are blocked for some other reason that you have to figure out um, whether you need to decide that your business is not venture backed and, and you can run it as a service business or, or a hobby business, or you can say, okay, I'm going to pivot in a meaningful way and I will found my perfect customer. So it's like, wow. for me, that was the light switch that I hadn't seen when I was building because I was so consumed in what I was building or like the few customers that I had, I was so consumed by their requirements and servicing them and keeping them happy and the invoices and everything that it's like, there is a big picture out there where um, you nobody wants to give you money for being you. They, they want to power a machine. Yeah. yeah. I think that, wow, that is fascinating. Sorry, I was writing all that down. <laughs> VCs want to give money for problems that can be solved with money. Yes. Right. So we need more of X. We need yes. more sales reps. We need yes. more, right. We need more engineers. We you, need you, more features, right? Yes. Like because we, we also, go ahead. Good. Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Because <laughs> this is just like a regular phone call with us, isn't it? <laughs> because, yes. Because, um, you know, because people want it, they don't want to give money to figure out, is there something here? Is there a market here? Do we fit that market? That those sorts of things. That is, that is a great, I have like, never like heard anybody say that before. That is a fantastic insight. So when it was told to me, it was also like very like light opening. Uh, and it was like, right, right now, every slide I see in a pitch deck, every company I look at, I, I look at their use of funds and I say, can their problems be solved with money? That's it. like, everything is so binary for me right now um, that it's, it's, it's like that, that gut feeling has developed. Um, I would say in the past two years where I can see where a company is going to get blocked, um, usually from a pitch deck, but, but um, like we have seen a lot of pitch decks where we have no idea what the company is building. So like, right. that's another problem. We, that's <laughs> the one we were just talking about. Right. But, but that, I mean, that is the gap. If you think about it, saying that, that, is, that the gap. is the gap in that communication gap. between investors and founders is they think they, we have thought in the past, if I could just get money, I could ask. Yes. We haven't thought about, is our problem really solved with money? We I just think, think I every think problem can be solved with money, right? A lot of startups um, oh. raise money for runway. Yeah. And usually that runway is to support for you to be alive. But you haven't created enough reason for your company to be alive yet. So it's like you... You may have you may have reasons to ask for that money. Of course, every company right. needs money, but it doesn't mean 
it makes sense for you to get money because venture capital is the most expensive type of funding that you could ever get for your company. Yes, if you think that's right, it. because you're giving away parts of your company for that. Parts yeah. of your company for that, absolutely. And the best money that you could get for your comp company is actually customer money. Yeah. Yes, the saying that I always had was, we don't have one problem that can't be solved by more sales. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot it, of that. It's interesting that, it's that you think that software. what you just said is founders think every problem can be solved by money. That's, I mean, right. And With time because right. time does equal money. And I think a lot of founders, when they raise, they raise to have more time to figure it out. Right. That that's right. And that is the kiss of death. That is, that's something yes. I think we even I recognized early on is you don't I've you, done it. I've done it yeah. too. I have absolutely yes. done it. You don't you don't raise money for runway, right? And no. people don't give money. They don't provide in or invest money for runway. They invest money for acceleration, for milestones, for outcomes. Right? So if you, you have to yes. always present in from that standard, that standpoint. In fact, you have just You've just precursored a, another episode that I've I've done. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I do this monthly show, Sana, where we give companies three minutes to pitch their company live on five social channels, right? And the first time we went through it, I thought, oh my gosh, we just left these people blind and in the dark as to what they should say in three minutes. So I did a, I've created a, a another episode that is the seven things you need to do to pitch yeah. your company in three minutes. Now, just saying seven things in three minutes makes it sound very daunting, but you can do it very quickly. And with the kind of focus that you have just provided, things like you don't buy runway, value. buy milestones, yes. Yes. that is incredibly valuable. Absolutely. And I think... Um, I think it's a good exercise to do even when you're not pitching to investors. Can Are you able to explain what you do in five sentences? Mm -hmm. Even less. You know, I'm, I'm not saying every company needs to be a Uber for X, but a clear definition of who you are and, and who is this product for, um, I think it's very critical. And it can be very difficult because, so I'll, I'll give you an example with our previous company. We were a technology first company. Um, so we had brilliant co-founders who come from incredible engineering backgrounds who built a technology and we tried to find a place for it in the market. We failed. A hammer searching for a nail, right? Yes, we failed. Um, but there are a lot of companies that come out of that phase as well. So it's not a cookie cutter solution to any startup, of course, but I would say this is cookie cutter for like 99% of startups. Like yeah. there are startups that are tackling incredible challenges. Like I've, I've been looking at, you know, what's, what's going on in space. And it's five years ago, people who wanted to build um, telco networks in space, they were seen as insane. But like today, as you see, you know, billions of devices going through in like oil fields and, you know, um, power right. lines and everything. And it's like people who are living with their RV in the middle of nowhere. And it's it's like 
all of our data and technology is built for what is available today. And like, we need to prepare the infrastructure for, for what's coming tomorrow. So it's like, there are startups like that, where it's like, whoa, this is big. And it's, um, it, I think we are in the perfect time um, where there is money for crazy people. There's crazy money for crazy people. And I, I, mm -hmm. I'd say crazy, I use crazy in the, the best of ways. Um, like the, there is enormous amounts of money available for people who are doing the most daring of things. Um, and I think that's incredible. How can I help you improve your shot at supply chain tech success? Four ways. One, subscribe to Tequila Sunrise wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you're notified of my new episode every week. Two, follow me on LinkedIn and see my supply chain summaries every weekday. Three, if you're a startup founder or growth stage leader and you need an active advisor to propel you through your supply chain tech journey, I'm currently considering select strategic advisory roles. Or four, if you need an incubator or investment for your supply chain tech, reach out to me on LinkedIn and let's talk.